Welcome to the Newson Health Menopause Podcast. I'm Dr. Louise Newson, a GP and menopause specialist, and I run the Newson Health Menopause and Wellbeing Centre here in Stratford-upon-Avon. So today I'm very honoured to be sitting with uh, Professor Geoffrey Hackett, who's a Professor of Sexual Medicine at Aston University. He also used to be the President of the British Society of Sexual Medicine, and we are very flattered that he is working here in the clinic sometimes as well, in my menopause clinic, seeing men rather than women, I hasten to add. So welcome, Jeff. Thank you very much, Lee. So I really wanted to spend a bit of time talking about men rather than women. So it's a bit out of my comfort zone because, as you know, all I do is see women in my clinic here, but I have seen a lot of men in the past. So can we just start by maybe talking about your journey to where you came from being a GP to being interested in men's health? Yes. Well, I I was a um, primary care physician for uh, 30 years and I always had an academic interest because I'd trained to medical registrar level in hospitals. And I started to do research into sexual problems because I noticed I was seeing a lot of men with hypertension and heart disease who complained about erectile dysfunction. This was really before leaders like Graham Jackson Mm. identified the link. So I actually did a a research project uh, involving three practices where we screened the population with rather primitive inventories at that time. And we found strong links between physical diseases and sexual dysfunction. And soon after I published that, trials were being developed for Viagra. Mm. And they came to me to do some of the trials. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. History. It's very interesting. But even in, in hospital medicine, were these men volunteering the fact that they had problems with sex? Or were you actually directly asking them... I had to directly ask them. They yeah. just wouldn't wouldn't no. speak at all. Because no. it's interesting, isn't it? So as a as a physician, we like to think that we're very open and that people can talk to us about anything and we don't get embarrassed, do we, about asking all sorts of intimate questions. But when you read the data, actually, a lot of people aren't asked about sex or whether men, if they have erectile problems. Well, the interesting thing is that in university, at medical school, we all do compulsory training yeah. in obstetrics and gynaecology. Mm. So um, we're all trained to take a menstrual history and to even ask about, you know, how much blood loss a woman has with each period and and even ways of assessing that sort of thing. So we're quite comfortable as male doctors talking to women about those subjects. And yet we're taught absolutely nothing about asking a man about his erections at all. I learned absolutely nothing in medical school. No, I didn't either. Which is staggering, isn't it? I think it was only really driven by the uh, arrival of potential treatments Mm. that made us begin to ask the question. Because tell us just a little bit about Viagra, because Viagra, what it is used for now is not what it was initially designed for, is it? No, it was was originally designed to treat men with uh, heart disease and hypertension. Mm. And of course, the patients therefore were taking it every day. Yes. And what happened in the trials was when they came back for follow-up visits, they were refusing to bring back their packs of tablets, <laughs> which was the first time this had ever happened. Mm. You, you know, you're not getting these back because they realised at the end of the study they wouldn't get any more. Yes. And it was only when they asked the questions as to why the men weren't giving them back that they then totally 
change the direction of the drug. Mm. But what we've forgotten is, of course, that they got that far in showing that they were really excellent cardiovascular drugs. Yes. Which is what we're beginning to realise 20 years later. Yeah, indeed. Because I remember listening to you lecture, I don't know, 15 years, a long time ago, at a conference, and it was all about men who have erectile problems is a mark of cardiovascular disease, so future heart attacks, even high blood pressure, even type 2 diabetes. And, you know, when people talk about libido and sex, people look at it in isolation almost, don't they? And this was first, when I first heard this, I thought, "Ah, how interesting. And so can you just explain a bit more why that is and what the data is about that? Because I think that's really interesting. Well, what we know now is that 80% of cases of ED... So that's erectile dysfunction. Erectile dysfunction, have an organic component. If we go back to the 70s and 80s, it was thought the other way round, that 80% were psychogenic. Yes. But then we realised it was strange that these psychogenic patients seemed to have diabetes. Mm. Uh, So then everything has completely turned round. And so we should consider that a man presenting with an erection problem has cardiovascular disease or diabetes Mm. until proven otherwise. Yes. And there are just so many studies that show that your your pickup rate Mm. uh, for a man coming in with an erection problem is far, far greater than if a man came in with thrush or something. Mm. We're taught that if you find thrush, check for diabetes. Yes. But with men, you rarely find it. But if you ask about erections, you pick up lots of diabetes and prediabetes. And the mechanism is really that you're looking at arterial disease occurring in smaller arteries because the arteries to the penis are about 60% the diameter of the coronary arteries. So that's so the arteries around the heart, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. So if you have the same amount of cholesterol being deposited over yes. time you will get symptoms of erection problems much earlier than you'll get symptoms of chest pain or heart failure. And it happens about three to five years before the arteries in the heart fur up. That's quite a long time, isn't it, for people to really wake up and think about their lifestyle, their anything they can do to reduce their risk of future heart it's only, it's only a long time yeah. if two or three years of it aren't wasted by the patient suffering in silence. Absolutely. So I think it's, yeah, I mean, it's so important, isn't it? So if men do have erectile problems, it's not just poo-pooed because they're stressed or they're busy or That's right. they're worrying about it or something else. Because a lot of the time, men don't come forward to the GPs, do they, complaining of erectile problems? No, and it's become much more difficult now when... There's a sign in the waiting room saying that you can only bring one problem with Indeed. each consultation. Yeah. So in my experience, the erectile dysfunction was always the subject that they mentioned just as they just were leaving the room. Putting on their coat, they have the door handle saying goodbye. Correct. Oh, doctor, there's just one more thing. And then it would happen. And, yeah. and it's very hard getting men to go to the doctors anyway, isn't it? Um, and, and also, you might only get one chance... Yes. And if that consultation goes badly, yes. you won't see that man again. I think so. And I think as a woman, I've had a lot of men who have been squirming in their seat wanting to say, and as soon as I've just spoken to them, they said, oh, gosh, you're not embarrassed. I said, well, no, not at all. It's really important to talk about. And then, But it's almost sometimes they, they're looking for a male GP or 
what someone that they think is sympathetic and yes. like you say if they don't get anywhere or then they're not going to go back are they and so they certainly right. won't think yeah. um, well i believe i found the only speciality in medicine where it's worthwhile still being a man yes <laughs> we're being made uh, rather redundant in most other fields yeah but it is key and so the earlier a man presents to a doctor or healthcare professional because they've got problems with erections the better for long-term health really isn't it if, if absolutely because if, if you've got the person who is three years or so away from having their Mm. myocardial infarction, their heart attack, you've actually got a chance to modify the risk factors and prevent that happening. So what can we do? So say, for example, someone comes to see you and they're maybe in their mid-40s, stressful job, put on a bit of weight, eating not so well, come and see you because the last few months they found it really difficult to have erections. Well, as soon as a younger man in his 40s, I, I... say that's a younger man, we mm. do see them in their 30s and even 20s now. As soon as a younger man comes in with an erection problem, that is really the patient where you should sit up and think something really is going on here. Mm. Uh, this isn't, particularly if he says it's happening all the time and, and it's persistent and it's getting worse. If it was fine when he was on holiday, no trouble at all, and then it's... Yes. But in my experience, it usually is each and every time and it's mm. getting worse. Then that man needs as full a, an assessment as if he'd come in saying that he'd got pains in his chest. Yes. So you need to get him under precise blood pressure control. You need to look very close at whether he's got diabetes mm. or pre-diabetes. Uh, you need to treat his lipids almost from the same way you treat primary prevention Mm. Uh, so there's none of this oh just go away and change to flora and i'll see you in two years time yeah to be quite aggressive with trying to improve all those risk factors because his risk is 50 percent greater so if you look at all the risk calculators Mm. now uh, they include erectile dysfunction and they increase the risk by up to 50%. So this increased risk of a heart attack? Yes. So if someone's got erectile dysfunction, so can't get an erection consistently, they've got a 50% increased risk of a heart attack. Correct. That's a lot, isn't it? That's right. We wouldn't ignore any other 50% risk. Absolutely not. But even then, even though it's in JBS3 uh, calculator and Q-risk, there's still evidence that when particularly the nurses are doing the assessments, Mm. they... They press the return button on yes. the computer twice yeah. when it comes to the erectile dysfunction yeah. question. I suppose to move on quicker because they think the consultation will be longer. Yeah, I mean, I know in general practice a while ago for diabetes, it well, did come in as a routine question that we had to ask. And then we often did testosterone blood tests in men and we often found them low in men with diabetes but then no one knew what to do about it. So then they took it off as a question because it was, it was saying, well, we're doing too many tests and then we've potentially got expensive treatment and we shouldn't be doing it. And it doesn't seem to make sense. Really. Well, I, I think it's fairly obvious that if you do seek out a problem by asking questions, you're bound to diagnose more. Absolutely. And if you don't, why are you asking the questions? Yeah. So it was fairly obvious mm. that that would happen. But it was also very interesting that in that one year in 2013 where it did appear on the quaff, uh, the diagnosis and prescribing rate more than doubled. Mm. 
But in the following year, when it was removed from the cloth for simplification, as they put it, it went back to actually below mm. the levels of diagnosis of the year before. Yeah. So talk about that, that testosterone. Um, yeah. Lots of people say to me, is there a male menopause or an andropause or whatever? What's your sort of terminology and what's your take on No, there, there, there isn't a, a male menopause or an andropause. It's a term that's used by the media mm. uh, to draw similarities to the female menopause because all women go through a menopause and uh, 80% of men maintain normal or adequate levels of testosterone throughout their life. Mm. So only about 20% of men have significantly low testosterone levels and it's generally associated with other diseases such as type 2 diabetes, Mm -hmm. such as obesity, such as taking uh, medications uh, such as opiate painkillers and more and more uh, nowadays uh, anabolic steroid use in younger men, which, which is, is a real, real problem. It's a real concern. Yeah. We, I might, we might do maybe a podcast on that alone because there's certainly a big increase in using these drugs for young bodybuilders, aren't there, which has long-term problems. Absolutely. But so you say so twenty percent, one in five men have low testosterone. That's a lot. How many men roughly have testosterone as a replacement treatment? Do you think in the UK? Uh, of that, we're still in the UK. It all depends where you draw your level, because the problem is what what you have is uh, action limits, which mm. are, which are guideline driven, where you will show evidence of benefit. And then you have reference ranges by the laboratory, which are purely uh, statistical results based on screening a population Mm -hmm. of 100 people. And so the majority of those 20% uh, don't get treated because they're in the just low range where the symptoms are mainly sexual symptoms, Mm -hmm. erectile dysfunction, loss of libido, loss of morning erections. This occurs between testosterone levels of about... 12 and 8 millimoles mm. per litre. But if you get below 8, then that's when there's a proven significant risk of, of mortality and of developing more diabetes. Mm. So those should definitely be treated. Yeah. And uh, there's general acknowledgement of that. But when it comes to men in the uh, slightly low range when they're just getting sexual symptoms, mm. I don't think a lot of NHS doctors are, are necessarily seeing restoring a middle-aged man's libido as a top priority for them on any working day. Which is a shame, isn't it? It is a shame. Because low testosterone in men is similar to low oestrogen and even low testosterone in women in that it's not just about symptoms, is it? It's about future diseases as well. So men who have low testosterone, certainly below eight, like you're saying, do have an increased risk of heart disease, osteoporosis... Type 2 diabetes, diabetes, which is a major problem for Mm. the developed world. Yes. And in fact, we're hoping that an intervention study in Australia, which is the T4D study, which will be published early next year, will actually show that intervening in younger men with Mm prediabetes will actually prevent progression to type 2 diabetes. It's It's one thing to have an observational study that shows that this happens. It's another thing to do an RCT. So this is giving testosterone to those who have 
a higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes. Or placebo in, yes, a, in a, yeah. a randomised trial yeah. over a period of four years. Yeah. So giving testosterone back, we know that it would lower the risk of heart disease and osteoporosis for these men who've got low testosterone, wouldn't it? Yeah, and there were several studies that show that. Mm. Uh, but the problem is that you've got to give the... Because the low testosterone puts them at increased risk in the first place, mm. uh, if you don't do the job properly, yes. they'll be at the increased risk because of the low testosterone that hasn't been treated. Yeah. So therefore, the, the reliable studies are the ones that actually show... A, that the men took the treatment, mm. and B, that they normalised their levels for yeah. a sustained period yeah. of time. And that's why so a few bad studies have confused the, the literature. A bit. Yeah, because it's quite different. Because as you know, in women, certainly if they're over 45, we don't do blood tests to diagnose the menopause. It's just a history taking. If their periods have changed in nature or frequency, they've got symptoms, then we often try them on HRT and see how they are after three months. Whereas for men they need to have at least two blood tests taken, don't they? Yes. And it should be what time of the day? It should be before 11 o'clock in the morning. Uh, just explain why that is. Uh, because there's a diurnal variation. Levels of testosterone are higher in the morning than they are in the evening. And uh, conventionally, all the trials were done on morning samples yes. because that's the way they were done. And so that's where the reference mm. ranges for all the tests come in. So if it's low and it's in the afternoon, it's not so. It no, might not be significant. So it's in the morning, yeah. and then they should have two blood tests done. So yes. one normal blood test, and a man still got symptoms. They could still have low testosterone. Yes, if you get a borderline one, um, you should repeat it. Mm. I believe that even if you get the first one being normal, if the symptoms are bad enough, mm. you should repeat it. Right. Yeah. Because otherwise, what's the logic if you'd repeat it if the first one was low? and then take the normal one when you repeat it as being the good one. Yes. So, you know, if the symptoms are, are clear, mm. uh, then you should do two even if the first one was... If the, if the first one is right at the top of the range, you'd probably be all right. Yeah. But if it certainly it was in the middle range, you'd repeat it. And then, so the commonest symptoms, obviously people know about erectile dysfunction, but then you're also saying tiredness. Well, a study called the European Male Ageing Study showed that the best predictive symptoms were erectile dysfunction, mm -hmm. loss of libido, and most importantly, nighttime or early morning erections. These erections, spontaneous erections mm -hmm. that men get in the morning, are very testosterone dependent. Right. And, and, and it's a question that we should ask all men. Yes. But it often gets neglected. That's, the, to me, the most important one. But then tiredness... A lack of strength. Um, mm. I always find that when a man says that he can't play football with his son and his son says, you're useless, Dad. Mm. You know, Johnny's mate's much more fun than you. Or his wife has to lift the shopping into the car because so, she's stronger than him. So muscle strength goes... Yeah. yeah. Another thing which has really hit us uh, when we've been doing a lot of meetings is, is the number of men who say that... Um, they fall asleep at the wheel of their car. Yeah, which uh, is a real concern. Yeah, particularly in the afternoon when mm. the levels are likely to be lower. Right. And particularly worrying if they're HGV drivers. Mm. Absolutely. Um, and a lot pull over and turn off their cockpit monitor yeah. and, and have a sleep by the roadside. 
And do men tend to put on weight if they've got low testosterone levels? Yes, it works both ways. If you've got a low testosterone, because testosterone controls the distribution between fat and muscle. Mm. Mm. So if you have a low testosterone, you will lose muscle and have more fat. Yes. Likewise, if you are uh, obese in the first place, the fat is, uh, particularly that fat around the abdomen, mm. is metabolically active and it produces a load of chemicals uh, that cause you to break down your own testosterone and convert it to oestrogen. Yes. Which is why when you see the men on their, at the football matches where they get their shirt off, mm. they've got big bellies yes. and, and often some man boobs yes. showing that there's probably a bit too much oestrogen. So those yeah. men who do have that body shape, yeah. who are having erectile problems, feeling more tired, a bit weaker, just a bit lower in their mood really should consider having testosterone levels undertaken, shouldn't they? Absolutely. I, I yeah. just count them up every time I go to a football match yeah. and see, see them No, all I mean, yeah. I, I always laugh at my children because I can spot menopause and women a mile yeah. away, but actually you can spot men who are likely to have low testosterone. And it's a bit like with the menopause, I often think for women it's a bit like a, it is really should be thought of as a female hormone deficiency syndrome yeah. because if we don't provide the hormones back we've got this increased risk of heart disease osteoporosis diabetes so it's not just about symptoms and it's exactly the same for men isn't it obviously if you give them testosterone their symptoms improve but also you're really investing in their future health aren't you yes and this you have to explain this to them Mm. because Men, are, I think, are worse than women. In, in they, they want a quick fix. Absolutely. This yeah. is why. <laughs> this is why they never read the instructions on any electrical appliance they open. They just push all the yeah. buttons. Uh, so they want an instant fix. And uh, even if you tell them that not to expect anything for mm. at least two or three months, they will still contact you two weeks later saying mm. that they're no better. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the longer that they've had a problem. Uh, the longer it's going to take for it to be So it correct. can take several months, can it? Yeah, because obviously things like change of body shape mm. takes time. You yes. know? Uh, we'd be laughed at if we got our gym membership on the 1st of January and then turned up two weeks later and wanted our money back because mm. we hadn't got a six-pack. Yeah. You know, this takes an awful lot of yes. work to convert yeah, uh, meaningful amounts of fat into muscle. And that's the mechanism by the way of how a lot of the symptoms improve Mm. because obviously the physical strength and the Mm. energy levels and the improvement of insulin levels and glucose levels are related to this um, balance between fat and muscle yeah they take time yeah so it's really important to persevere and be monitored as well isn't it that's right and the interesting thing is often the libido improves before the erections Right. So men, men should always be offered a tablet to help with their erections. So because, something like Viagra yeah, equivalent, yeah. yes. Because otherwise it can be more frustrating if your libido comes back and, they can't and, perform. and you can't perform. Yeah. So talk just briefly about Viagra because we can buy it over the counter now or men can buy it over the counter, can't they? Yes. And is that a good thing? Because from what we've talked about even just now, surely men with low testosterone will be buying Viagra and maybe disappointed that it's not working or ignoring the fact that there might be other reasons for their erectile dysfunction. Well, as we discussed earlier, what we were doing before wasn't working Mm. uh, because some GPs just weren't asking, even though they were following up men who were prime candidates for erectile dysfunction. 
So something needed to be done. And I was involved in the committee that looked into this. And in, in general, I think it's positive because there are a group of men out there who, whatever you say, won't go to their GP yeah. about it. This is the way they lead their lives. Yes. Everything is done through the internet. Yes. And what it does is it puts them in contact with a healthcare professional mm. because all the pharmacists have been trained mm. uh, to ask some questions and to spot risk factors. Mm. So when they see a man come in who looks like they've got some of the features that we've said, they will be directing that patient straight along to their general practitioner. Right. And they even have the facility to be able to check their blood pressure, measure their cholesterol, mm. even now uh, measure their testosterone. Which is uh, in, great. In, so yeah. they can help to screen those men. Yeah. And I, I, you'll correct me, the percentages of counterfeits on the internet of Viagra is really high isn't it when they've looked to see those blue tablets that are bought online a lot of them are not real are they or they're not real um, and a lot of the proceeds go towards organized crime yeah and even if you see an advert that says it's from a Canadian pharmacy with a nice looking lady in a white coat it probably comes from India yes and whereas a lot of them do contain some active drug they also tend to contain whatever happens to be lying around mm. at the time, a bit of chalk dust, a bit yeah. of brick dust, anything just to make up the tablet. So having it available over the counter, at least people know they're getting what you know yeah. what they want as opposed to ordering it online and getting something Yeah, else. We, we, we wouldn't treat our, uh, our car this way. No. We wouldn't put some brake fluid in our car that we'd, we, 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 we'd got yeah, from yeah. another source. We wouldn't trust our car unless it was a qualified mm. mechanic looking at it mm. so to treat our bodies in, in this way is, is absurd really yeah so it has its role as long as people are aware that viagra isn't just for everyone and it's not just um the only treatment but there are other tablets aren't there viagra was the first one that came out yeah. and all the studies that's what everyone knows yeah but you tend to not really use Viagra first line for a lot of men, do you? Well, if, if we turn back to what we discussed at the beginning, mm. where I, I said that these were good drugs that were being developed to treat cardiovascular disease, mm. the drug companies weren't stupid because they got as far as the advanced studies and they knew these drugs were likely to have benefits. And if the way in which these drugs work is by opening up blood vessels to improve mm. the blood supply to the penis... They're also improving the blood supply to other organs like mm. the heart, like the kidneys, like the peripheral circulation. Mm. So there'll be good treatment for cold hands, cold feet, even possibly improving the circulation to the brain. Yeah. But you won't get these benefits if you're only doing it for one tablet for four hours a week. Mm. So that they should be given, as they were in the, in the studies, on a daily basis. Yes. And there are formulations now which are long-acting, mm. whereby you can take uh, a tablet every day. Because Viagra doesn't last very long, does it? No, it um. only lasts for about four hours, mm. probably at the most. And also, there are a lot of relationships whereby that link of having to take a tablet an hour before sex can actually be very detrimental to it's a quite relationship. It's pressurised, isn't it? Pressurised. It makes it very it. clinical. Yeah, um, yeah. And Viagra can be affected sometimes if you eat a meal, can't it? Whereas Absolutely. And a lot of romance happens in this country after a nice yeah. meal and a bottle of wine. Yes. 
And so both um, food and alcohol delay the absorption. So after the romantic meal, it's slowing the absorption mm. of the drug and both of them are asleep yeah, by the time it's, it's working. Yeah. So the alternatives are often better for various yeah. reasons. Yeah, a lot, lot of times the longer-acting tablet Tadalafil, mm. as previously Cialis, mm. can be even better the day after than the day that oh, you took it. Okay, and that makes it more spontaneous, which is... Particularly in new relationships, because, you know, if you were going on a first date with somebody, it wouldn't be the most romantic thing to tell them that it will always uh, happen once a week on a Saturday night after taking a tablet an hour before. Yeah, so that's good. It's nice to know there are options, and I think for men who maybe have tried bag over the counter and it's not for them, knowing that there are alternatives is really important. Absolutely. Um, and the earlier you get treated, the better the results, because uh, the results of, from treating early, milder problems are much better than if you get a patient who hasn't had an erection for five years, rather like if you have somebody who hasn't got off their couch for five mm. years, getting them back walking or running yeah. regularly will be very difficult yeah. the longer they've been out of so there. So there's no prizes for suffering in silence? Absolutely not. Absolutely good. Oh, that's been really interesting. Before we finish, could I just ask for you for three take-home points just for men or even partners of men to think about regarding their sort of libido, sexual health? Well, I I would say that the first message is that having uh, erections and sexual activity is great for men's health. Mm -hmm. Lots of studies have shown that if you have intercourse two or more times a week, it significantly reduces your chances of a heart attack and you live longer. I like that one. Great. And for women, in case they're wondering, the quality of the sex seems to matter more than the quantity. Uh, The second message would be that if you have a problem with your erections, a man in that situation has heart disease or a medical problem causing it until proven otherwise. Mm. Don't put it down to be stress, age, work or anything like that. And the third point I would make is that the treatments that we use uh, for erectile dysfunction are great medications that potentially might reduce the rate of heart attacks. There is no risk whatsoever. They are extremely safe Mm. and a physician shouldn't be telling patients that there is any risk in taking these drugs because if you're fit enough for sexual activity then there's no problem whatsoever in taking the medication really reassuring so thank you ever so much jeff and jeff's got a website jeffreyhackett.co.uk and um, you see patients here and in other places but all the details are on the website so thank you very much thank you thanks louise for more information about the menopause please visit our website www.menopausedoctor.co.uk Co.